In the first four um, sermons in this series, I <laughs> tried to do uh, a radical thing. I tried to change the way you think about yourself. So um, I said, look, how we think about ourselves is important. Uh, we're up against some challenges in doing it rightly, in part because of our sin nature and the blind spots that creates, in part because of some ongoing challenges in culture, in part because of some new challenges in culture. Uh, I said, look, we're, we're up against some obstacles, but it's imperative that we learn to see ourselves in line with these big ideas that God has shared about us. And so then I, I established the, the big four, said we are, uh, Genesis 1, we are highly valued. Genesis 3, we are uh, greatly fallen. We jumped into the New Testament and I said we are eternity shaped. And then the final one was we are greatly loved. So today I want to talk about our heart and then I want to do uh, another radical thing. So uh, this discussion about our heart comes out of a conversation that Jesus is in that's recorded in uh, Mark chapter 12. So there are 600 laws in the Old Testament, and uh, they get summarized uh, in Leviticus. But uh, when you add in all the additional laws that the Pharisees were trying to force on people, there's just way too many laws out there. So, uh, so we've got a guy asking, in essence, um, for the cliff notes, like, you know, what is it that I need to be focused on? So this is Mark chapter 12, and uh, we got a Pharisee that is approaching Jesus. So one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, said Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is sort of a, uh, a creed, the Shema. And then he goes on, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. Nice, nice of him to um, compliment Jesus on uh, getting the right answer. You're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all uh, burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, the teacher, this Pharisee, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So I want to focus on this idea of loving God with our heart. There's all kinds of places that we could look to to establish the importance and the primacy of the heart. So uh, there's about a thousand references to the heart in the Bible. David in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart. His son Solomon, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own, on your own understanding. Solomon again, Proverbs 4, guard your heart because everything flows out of it. Um, since you've been raised with Christ, this is Paul, Colossians 3, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Then in Philippians 4, Paul again, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds. So, 
what we need to understand is that uh, heart is a very prominent, important aspect of who we are, and loving God with our heart is critical to the way we are going to be renewed. So let me just pause here and come at this from a little bit different angle and say this. We are not told that the way forward is to gain more knowledge and insight. Now, um, the Bible is not against knowledge and insight. As a matter of fact, later in this Mark 12 passage, we're we're told that we need to love God with our mind. So uh, I I, want to be clear, we need to develop our mind. But despite uh, our modern sort of enlightenment-infused understanding that... uh, Education leads to progress, leads to salvation. That all we have to do is, you know, have greater clarity, greater understanding that this is going to lead us forward. That's not the case. Uh, It's not enough to simply know something. Furthermore, it's not enough to to know the Bible better. So Jesus is going to repeatedly talk to religious leaders who had effectively memorized the Old Testament. And he's going to ask them, have you not heard, have you not read uh, what is said? Now, of course they'd heard and read, but just hearing, just reading, even the Bible, having that insight alone is not enough. So what does Jesus say here? What does he lead with when he's talking about how we can grow, how we can get better, how we can mature, how we can become uh, more Christ-like? He talks about the need to love God with our heart. And this begs the question that we need to understand uh, our heart. We need, a, we need to understand exactly what the Bible is referring to when it calls on us to love God with our heart. So let me just start by, by stating the obvious. Um, when the Bible uses the term heart, cardia in Greek, from which we get cardiac, uh, when the Bible uses this word, it's not talking about, you know, a muscle in our chest that pumps blood. And uh, it, it's, it's talking instead about sort of the essence of who we are and how we operate. It is, uh, it is talking about the core of our being, the hub of our personality, and, and the source of a lot of things that actually we would be inclined today to think of as our mind or as our brain. So over the years, I've just to try and keep this straight for myself, I've, I've collected a lot of different descriptions from theologians and pastors and authors and other things about the heart, to understand what is meant by heart. So one person wrote, the heart is an amalgamation of ideas, beliefs, values, feelings, and memories. So all the things that sort of make us who we are. It's this combination of our, of our uh, ideas, our beliefs, our values, our emotions, our memories. Another person said, our heart is the interior motivational structure that produces behavior. Another uh, writer said, our heart is uh, not just the seat of our emotions, it's the place where we do our thinking, willing, and decision-making. And then uh, one writer said, it is the source of our fundamental commitments, hopes, and trusts. Uh, What the heart 
trusts, this is Dallas Willard, with the heart trusts, the mind justifies, the emotions desire, and the will carries out. So this, is, this goes back, Blaise Pascal, a 17th century Christian uh, thinker and uh, French philosopher, has this famous line where he talks about, uh, we know the truth not only through reason, but also through the heart. The heart has its reasons, which reason knows nothing about. So it's saying just reason, just pure rationality is not all that we're talking about when, when we talk about reasons. Our heart is shaping our thoughts. It's shaping our minds. So think of your heart as command central. It is who you are. It's the essence of your of your thinking, your willing, your decision-making, your emotions, all that stuff gets wrapped up in your heart. Uh, in, in his book, uh, The Happiness uh, Hypothesis, Jonathan Haidt, who is a, uh, a professor and an author, he's a, he would describe himself as a liberal Jewish atheist. Uh, he could also be described as a social psychologist and as a New York Times bestselling author, He's a moral philosopher. He's got some really uh, very good books out. Uh, and in one of his books, he, he describes this uh, insight that he had. He's riding an elephant. And he says, ostensibly, I was in control. Uh, I was on the top of the elephant, and I've got, you know, reins and a little whip, and I'm, I'm guiding the elephant. He goes, it's immediately obvious to me, <laughs> he said that, that uh, the elephant is only going to take orders from me if the elephant has no desires of its own. Like if the elephant wants to go in a certain direction, me pulling on its reins a little bit is not going to direct the elephant. And so when he talks about this, he said, the elephant in essence is our heart. And he said, I, sitting on top, being rational, was the mind. But the heart is going to do what the heart wants to do. So I think this is a good way. It's not perfect, but it's a good way to start thinking about this. The heart is the elephant. The elephant is going where the elephant wants to go. It's open to being directed by uh, the mind if it doesn't have strong desires of its own. Point number two. Second thing we need to understand about the heart, and that is that it is broken. So I'm not talking about you know, you've got a broken heart, romance is not working out. That's, that's horrible, and if that's your situation right now, I'm sorry. Um, but I'm, I'm talking about something very different. Uh, I'm using the term broken heart to reference the idea that we are sinful, that we're, we're morally, spiritually broken. So I already made this point just a few weeks ago. This is, this is point number two. I said we're highly valued, Genesis 1, then we're were deeply fallen. This was the Genesis 3 passage that we looked at. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time going back uh, to rehearse that. What I want to remind you of is that, um, is that our heart is, it's not just a surface wound, but our heart is profoundly broken and misdirected. The prophet Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Uh, in Matthew 15, Jesus is in this discussion with some of the religious leaders, and he does not go through the ritual cleansing 
before he eats. And they come after him. The, the, the Pharisees had all this, all these, these ways that you were supposed to wash your hands in order to be, you know, purified, in order to be uh, sacramentally clean. And Jesus just says, look, uh, this is all, this is all tomfoolery. Like, what are, what are you talking about? The, the, the problem of your heart is not from, from germs on your hands that get on your food. The food goes into your stomach, it passes through your body. That's not the issue. The problem that we have is what comes out of our heart. It's the anger, it's the slander, it's the lust, it's the rage, it is, it's the greed. The problem is not going into our body. The problem is coming out of our heart. Our heart is broken. So, uh, please hear me, therefore. I'm, 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 making, um, I'm making a couple points here that are perhaps a little different from what you might have thought of. I am suggesting that our problems, your problems, are not principally from outside influences. It's not from Hollywood. It's not from, uh, it's not from culture. Uh, those influences are not helpful uh, often, but our problems do not start there. Our problems start with our heart. So, <clears throat> those who think their problems come from a lack of understanding and those who think their problems come from culture and outside are both misdirected. Heart is, is uh, command central and our problem is we need to love God but it's broken and it doesn't default in that direction. And it's actually, uh, the, the Jeremiah passage suggests that it's even worse because it's not just that our heart is broken, it's that it's deceitful. So it's broken but we don't know that it's broken. Right? It deceives us, it misdirects us. And so we pick up on this um, in that uh, passage in Jeremiah 15. We also pick up on this in, in Psalm 51. David will ask God to examine his heart, right? Examine my heart and see if there's any sin in me. Because he doesn't effectively trust himself to be able to see the sin that is in his own heart. Because he recognizes that uh, our, our heart is not just broken. It misleads us. My, <clears throat> my experience as a pastor is that there is a lot of denial out there. Uh, there are a lot of people who do not really appreciate <laughs> who they are. They don't see themselves very accurately. Their heart is bent, and uh, it takes uh, a lot of work uh, over time to try and, and you know, shine the headlights in because they are denying that there is any brokenness in them. Um, my experience, not as a pastor, my just, just my experience as a person, my experience as a Christian, is that uh, uh, on two occasions as an adult, uh, I went to see a therapist because I became persuaded from friends, mostly from Sherry, that I was not seeing things accurately. I was not seeing, in particular, myself accurately. And, uh, and that's, uh, obviously, it's a very disorienting and disruptive thing to try and uh, come to peace with. It's like, 
okay, my, my bearings are off. Uh, my read on situations may not be accurate. And I've got to figure out how to figure that out more effectively. So uh, let me just say, our ability, let me, let me be more specific. Your ability to rationalize your behavior is nearly limitless. Uh, this is something that I think we, we sort of see in other people, but it's been substantiated by, uh, by studies through the years. Um, in his book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves, uh, Duke Professor Dan Airely notes that we lie for two basic reasons. First of all, we lie for selfish gain. We want something, we want to avoid trouble, we want to do, what, there is some reason for us to lie in order to win. Secondly, we lie so that we can look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I'm a good person. Like, I can look at myself in the mirror and go, yeah, I'm, I'm a good guy. So um, he points out that these two, uh, these two motivations are in obvious conflict. However, we don't see that because, and he uses this great phrase, of our amazing cognitive flexibility. <laughs> so, uh, we have this amazing cognitive flexibility, this amazing ability to deceive ourselves, this amazing ability to lie to ourselves, this amazing ability to use Romans 1 language to suppress the truth, uh, and uh, we could also just call it sin. We could also just say we have this amazing ability to sin. So the Duke study confirms what we've known for thousands and thousands of years, that we are so broken that it takes a tremendous amount of work and honesty to see how broken we are. So let me back up here, uh, remind you, I have said the hardest command central it is sort of what determines how we think, how we act, what we're going to do. Uh, two, the heart is broken. We can't always trust the gauges that we're looking at to give us accurate information. So we not only have a problem, we have a problem with a problem. And Houston, it's actually a little bit worse than that, and that's because uh, point number three, the third thing we've got to understand about our heart is that uh, untended, it will grow cold and hard. Or maybe a better way to say this is that it will grow colder and harder than it already is. So I can imagine <laughs> some of you are thinking, you're leaning over to the person next to you and saying, I bet this guy doesn't get invited to many parties. <laughs> like what? A cosmic killjoy. What, what a complete Eeyore. Yeah, no, it's not great information, but don't shoot the messenger. Uh, I'm just trying to help you understand the challenges that you are up against. We need to know that our hearts are broken, that they deceive us, and that if we are not actively working on it, actively guarding our hearts, actively confessing sin, actively heading down this path, then uh, our problems are getting worse 
over time. Now, if we confess our sin, right? I mean, the great news, First John, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to cleanse us of all our sin. We were forgiven of all our unrighteousness. However, I, I, as legally and in one sense spiritually we go back to being having a clean slate, there's this other sense in which uh, we may be facing the consequences of our sin. Uh, and additionally, it's almost as if uh, unless we have really, unless we are really working at this, we've sort of made a little uh, chink in the armor that's going to make that sin easier to do the next time. Whatever we do, whatever you do today, whatever you do today, whether good or bad, whatever you do today is easier to do tomorrow. So if you are disciplined today, it's easier to be disciplined tomorrow, especially if we create habits of good practices, virtuous behavior. Then those things don't take nearly as much energy down the line. But if we sin, then that's, that specific sin is much easier to do tomorrow, and our heart is callous, so we don't feel nearly as guilty about it. And as a matter of fact, because our heart is calloused, that same sin doesn't give the, the same uh, return, and so generally we get sucked down this path of greater sin. See this perhaps most easily with gambling or something like that where you can just quantify how you know, the, the debts just keep getting bigger. The bets and the debts keep getting bigger and bigger. So, these are the three points about the heart. We are commanded in Mark chapter 12 to love God with all our heart. And then I've said heart is command central. Uh, our heart is broken and it is uh, deceptive as well. And then uh, we have to understand that there is a cumulative impact of sin. So our hearts over time become cold uh, or colder and harder. And so we have to be very proactive if we're going to um, if if we're going to cultivate hearts that are soft to the things of God, cultivate hearts that can hear the still small voice of God speak to us. Um, so we have to work really hard to this end. So, what am I suggesting? What am I saying? Well, um, I am starting by saying this. You need to understand that you are the steward of your heart. And to that end, I want to I say to you, you, you have to understand that in being the steward of your heart, you can actually shape your heart. Now, uh, this is, I, I'm, I'm very close to saying things that aren't true, and I started with this illustration that our heart is like an elephant, and it's going to do whatever it wants to do. Yes, that's true. And there's a sense in which I have said before, and I, I will say it right now, the opposite of what I just said. We can't change our heart. I cannot will my heart to be better. I, I just can't do that. However, I am a steward of my heart, and I can do things or put myself in situations where my heart is going to be shaped in different directions. I am told, you are told, uh, to guard your heart or to set your heart on things above uh, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. There's a sense in which we can uh, be involved in steering our heart. So I was uh, in the grocery store a while ago, 
and there was a young girl in full tantrum mode, full meltdown, laying on the floor, screaming, kicking, yelling, crying, and uh, refusing uh, any of the coaching of her mom to sort of, you know, get up off the floor and, and do the right thing. Now, I am, Sherry and I are, are uniquely sympathetic to parents in this situation, provided that the parents are, uh, are remaining adults in the situation. We're sympathetic because we had a child that threw some public tantrums. I think we stopped counting after like, you know, 7,000. I mean, it was just, it went on and on. And we knew, like, if your child throws a tantrum, right, you can't give in because if you give in, you're reinforcing that behavior. Yeah, we knew that. The problem is no one told this child of ours uh, that that's the way it worked. And so we would, you know, just consistently not give in, not give in. But people would come along to us and they'd say, you know, if you don't give in, they'll stop throwing tantrums. And we'd say, right, we know that. The problem is he doesn't know that. Why don't you please tell him? But don't get too close. He's a monster and he might bite your face off. So... When I see parents on airplanes or, you know, in, in grocery stores, any place where a child is throwing a tantrum and the, the adult is being an adult and they're saying, look, you know, you need to get up off the floor. You need to stop crying. You need to do what I'm asking you to do. This isn't going to get your way. So that's what this mom was doing. And the, the little girl uh, screamed at her, you can't tell me how to feel. Which uh, I thought, well, wow, we've got, uh, we've got this little girl who's being coached and schooled in uh, sort of the latest of our, culturals, uh, of our cultural voices. Uh, the mom said, uh, and with this I disagreed with her a little bit. I mean, it was a good statement. She says, look, I'm not telling you how to feel. I'm telling you how to behave. And that's true and that's right. But here's the thing. What we get in Scripture are places where we are told how to feel. And, and this is where this gets a little bit confusing because uh, you might say, well, look, I, I, I can't control what I love. I love what I love. And I would say, yeah, there's a sense in which if the elephant is, you know, stampeding, you're pretty powerless at some point. But, but we can, in fact, over time, shape the elephant. We can, in fact, over time, make the decisions, choose the practices, position ourselves in places where uh, our heart, the elephant, is shaped in the right direction. And so we see throughout Scripture, you know, uh, for instance, the Psalms, where repeatedly the psalmist is speaking to his soul <laughs> and telling his soul how to think and how to act and what to do. And so uh, I, I want to say that, uh, that we need to understand that we should be asking ourselves two questions. This is T.S. Eliot, by the way, the great, the great poet, previous century. Uh, we need to be asking ourselves, what do I love and what should I love? And we need to understand we have some control over that. It's just not uh, a direct approach. So... Um, the second thing that I want to say is that, that there are ways that, um, radical ways, 
that we can begin to, I think, win our hearts back. And uh, I, I'm only going to give you one today. There's, there's all kinds of things that we are coached to do. Again, this isn't, this isn't rocket science, right? This isn't, it's not like we're clueless as to kinds of things that we can do in order to cultivate a, a better heart. Bible reading, prayer, service, right? I mean, we're, we're 2,000 years after Jesus. We've got, we've got the word of God, which we can study and memorize and meditate on. And we've got the practices and the reflections of 2,000 years of men and women who were devoted to try and seek after Christ, talking about some of the kinds of things that help them, whether it's silence or it's this or that. So, over the course of this year, we will, we will go after some of those things. I want to talk about one in particular today. And this is where my challenge is a little bit more specific than I normally give. And in that sense, perhaps a little bit more radical. So this, uh, earlier this week, Ben Dockery and I, Ben, campus pastor at the Lake Forest campus, uh, Ben Dockery and I uh, hosted a dinner. We were told these are called Jeffersonian dinners. That seems a little highbrow, but, uh, but yes, we hosted a dinner uh, where we gathered a number of uh, academics together around a specific topic. In this case, pluralism in higher education. So one of the things that we're going to do as a church in, uh, in next year is we're going to launch an institute. And we're very early in the process of, of forming this, but it's going to have deeper discipleship opportunities. It's going to have vocational discipleship opportunities. It's going to have some public theology expressions. And under this public theology expression, we're trying to, to, to interact with some of the more pressing issues of the moment. And uh, at, at this moment, there's just a lot of reasons to trying to think about pluralism, which is basically saying uh, in, in society you've got three big options. You've got complete anarchy, you know, chaos. You've got total control by, by some group. Or you've got this messy middle where people are trying to figure out how to, how to make society work, how we're going to live together. Politics is the study. How are we going to do this? How are we going to get along? Well, as you know, um, as things have changed over the course of the last 50 years, we have, we have some radically different kinds of thinking in the country, in schools, in churches, in, you know, there's, in companies. And the question is, how do people who deeply disagree with each other over some important topics, how do we coexist? So it's a political question, but it's a theological question, and it's a question for uh, colleges and, and uh, universities. And so we specifically were just trying to pilot this little exploration into these kinds of discussions, Jeffersonian dinners. And so we were looking at pluralism, and we invited some college presidents and some provosts and some uh, trustees, chairs of a couple schools, uh, the trustee boards for a couple schools, from all over the country, we invited them in for this extended discussion. And, uh, and it was fascinating, and that's a topic for another day. Here's, here's the point. One of the people that we invited uh, there is an expert. It's a Wheaton professor, uh, Annie Black, uh, uh, Wheaton professor of political science. And she had just 
done a, a big national study on pluralism and Christianity in the public square. And she did it with uh, Michael Ware, who was uh, under President Obama. Michael Ware was a, uh, like the office of faith or whatever the presidents have now. And so she's a little bit more on the right. He was a little bit more on the left. He's a little bit more of a public figure. She's a little bit more of an academic. But they came together and they got all this money and they did this study on pluralism and they talked with all these people and they published a big report, very significant report, and they published it uh, pretty much right on the day when we were going to have our REACH uh, service at the Genesee Theater, which is like right before the whole country shut down. So she was giving a report on this to sort of guide our conversation. I'm, I'm making too much of this. Here's what I want to get to. One of the points that she made was she said, we've reached a, a point today, a tipping point today, where people's faith is being shaped by their politics. It used to always be that people's politics was primarily being shaped by their spiritual formation. But she goes, it's not happening that way today. Now, that's not new information to somebody like me. Uh, I mean, I I've certainly have seen that. It was interesting to sort of see it corroborated by, you know, by quantitative study to say, yes, this is what's happening. Here's where I'm going with this. Your heart is being shaped by certain voices and forces and factors. And I'm challenging you to make sure that you are less shaped by talk radio and social media and all of those other voices than you are by Jesus. Like, I am challenging you to unplug. And my challenge, if you want to know my challenge, my challenge would be to do this for a month. I'll take whatever I can get. But some of you have got like a main line. Uh, you, you wake up and the first thing you do is you look at your phone and you're looking at social media or you're, you're reading your news report or you're on Twitter. Or, and, and, and that is what is shaping you. And here's the thing. Increasingly, even this week, we, we've, we've heard in the news that, that the algorithms are designed to make us scared or angry. And increasingly, we see this in the media, that, that the way to keep people listening is to get them engaged. And the way to get them engaged is to make them mad, uh, to make them full of hate, or, or to make, make us scared. So I want to say, this, not this, or whatever this equivalent is for you. Is it the news media? Is it, is it again, is it talk radio? What, what is it? But you have to be shaped. Your heart has to be shaped more by Jesus than it is by anything else. And if, if that's not your mental diet, then do not be surprised when your heart is full of anger and hate and fear and it's running in the wrong direction. You cannot say to your heart, don't be angry, don't be fearful, right? Don't run in that direction. But you can choose the kinds of inputs that you're going to take. So you want to be renewed. You want to grow in faith. You want to have a heart that is not anxious. You want to have a heart that, that is full of joy and hope. Then you have to fill it with the gospel. You have to fill it with Jesus. You have to fill it with, you have to fill it with this, 
not with this. So here's the radical challenge. What if you decided you're not going to look at your phone? Maybe all you can do is decide you're not going to look at your phone for the first hour, or you're not going to listen to the radio, or you're not going to turn on the, the TV for the first hour, and you're going to read. Or you're going to, you, know, you, you say, I find reading the Bible confusing. Okay, write out 10 verses of the Sermon on the Mount every morning. Write them out and carry them around with you. And then the next day, write out the next 10 verses. I mean, look, if, if you need some specifics, it, we can give you some, some specifics. I'm saying, unplug from the voices of anger and hate, whatever side of the dial you're getting those from. Make certain that the biggest source of shaping your heart is Jesus and his good news. That is the challenge. Love God with your heart. You can't just decide to do it, but you can take steps like this in order to do it. Let me pray for us. Lord God, uh, create in us a clean heart. Forgive us for all the stuff that is in our heart that we have put there. Uh, Father, cleanse us. Give us renewed hearts. Help us to have the, um, the discipline and uh, the insight to break the addictions to the voices that we have allowed to feed us. Guide and direct us, Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.